Are you looking for a good book? Then let's talk. Books and Authors is the book show on Futures Television. We bring you the best authors, on a variety of genres. There are so many great books out there, so where do we start? Leave the digging for us. You can watch Books and Authors every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. Hello, and welcome to Books and Authors, the book show on Futures Television and on Radio Futures. I am Rom Gayozo, your host. Today, we're talking about customer-driven change, Bud Taylor's latest book. First and foremost, thank you so very much for your being here with me and my guest today. I know your time is very important, and I'm the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. Remember, if you're watching this show via Futures Television, the home of the future on television, or listening to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on the radio, you too can be part of the conversation. This show airs on television every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. This show is broadcast via Radio Futures daily, also at 2 p.m. Pacific. If you're not watching us live, please join us on our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to chat about the topic of the day. So uh, let's get going. And before I introduce Bud Taylor, I'd like to say a few words about him. All righty. He's an executive advisor, global management consultant, keynote speaker, and book author. In fact, today, we're talking about his latest book. He writes about a variety of business topics, and among them, customer-driven change, innovation, and organizational change management. Well, without further ado, let's welcome Bud to the show. How are you doing today, Bud? I am just excellent, Ram. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for your taking the time to be here with me and the audience. So many questions. So, you know, we have to get started somewhere. And, and, and Bud, I'm so sorry. I hope I didn't do too bad of a job at the introduction. I hope I didn't botch it too much. Could you please say a few words about yourself and your journey? Sure. Uh, you did a great job, by the way. Uh, the journey, really, uh, I'm a, a Canadian citizen. Uh, I moved to the United States. I moved to Dallas in 1995. I was naturalized as an American citizen in 2002. I've had an extensive uh, career in consulting and managing consultants. Uh, I uh, worked for places like, uh, like Deloitte, where I was a partner, Ipsos uh, Research, and also uh, Willis Towers Watson, which are, are very uh, large and well-known uh, well firms. Um, I am in uh, executive management globally. Generally today, I, I just uh, advise executives. Uh, I've worked on all ranges of clients from startups to family-owned businesses, medium-sized businesses, and marquee uh, global companies uh, that you would know, like, uh, like Whirlpool, Toyota, uh, Sony. And I spent two and a half years uh, working with Tere uh, Korea Telecom. So I have a, a pretty broad range uh, across the, uh, the world. I consult in strategy, innovation, organization, executive development. That's basically what I'm up to. 
So what I like about your work and, and the books you write and the articles is that because you've been in so many different countries, you have this global perspective, whereas uh, most of the time or more often we struggle because we kind of you know have this tunnel vision and say, well, this is how we sit in the U.S. or this is how we sit in Canada or elsewhere versus you know your experience being so many different countries. It allows you to have this this multiverse before the multiverse perspective so you can approach the issue uh, uh, with different sets of eyes and I think this is what is really key here is trying to understand you know or look in the world through different lenses and I think you do an awesome job an awesome job at that Uh, so let's talk a little bit about about your book let me pull pull it up again so it's customer driven change Mm -hmm. what your customers know it's an yeah. award-winning book, right? Now, can you tell us a little bit about the book? What was the idea of the book? Uh, you know, you know, Rom. Just let me uh, uh, play off of what you just said about culture, because that's so important. It's the thing that I really enjoy in my work. My work is is very Let's diverse. Go there. Let's go. Pardon there. me. Just Let's just one there. comment, because it is culture. As you move around the world. Things change on you and the, uh, the, the methods, procedures that you use, the tools that you use in the Western world don't apply. I know I spent two and a half years uh, working on innovation, building innovation capability at Korea Telecom. And one of our big issues was we had to back off our, our theories, our uh, hypotheses, our tools so that they could be interpreted uh, into the Korean context, which is, of course, very hierarchical and deferential, quite different from ours. So I just want to make that point. It's one of the things I very much enjoy in my work. In terms of uh, uh, customer-driven change uh, and the idea behind it, the idea is simple. It's in the title. Um, I like to uh, work where customers are driving the change within an organization. Often I get involved in organizations and a new manager's come in with a new mandate or a board is structuring a new mandate. And uh, oftentimes it becomes very internal. And I take them to the perspective of the customer. Every business um, has been built because somebody had a great idea of a new product or a new service. As time goes on, our organizations get built not to serve the customer the way they did at the start. So I try to refresh where people have already been. Um, I found it uh, really quite uh, uh, interesting that uh, there there are techniques that anybody can use, simple techniques any manager can use to find out what their customer is doing. It often amazes me that they don't. For example, one of the simplest things you can do is to call your own organization, call your own office, see how difficult it is to get to you. Uh, I always uh, smile when I, when I hear the uh, phrase on, from a call center, your call is very important to us. Well, if it's so important to me, to you, then why aren't you answering the phone, right? So uh, try to find out from the outside. Other things that we can teach people to do very simple customer experience mapping. When someone comes into your retail facility or, or comes into your, your, your factory, uh, what are the interfaces they hit? How are those interfaces being handled? Not only rationally, 
but emotionally as well. The people feel connected. And then you get, of course, to more deep things like customer research. So, but it's, it's very interesting. So uh, my entire career, I worked in large manufacturing organizations and the cultures were, you know, they were engineering cultures. So uh, people need things. And, and most of the people thought, you know, make it and therefore they will buy it. And there, there's this, this massive disconnect between, you know, what we wanted to make <laughs> and what people wanted to buy. And then, of course, you hear, you know, voice of the customer, voice of the customer, but people are so detached. I mean, they're all, all delusional about, you know, their own ideas that people are often disconnected. And I think that's an important aspect of, of your job is to kind of how to go back to the, and you, you said that so beautifully, how to go back to the original idea where, you know, <laughs> uh, we were supposed to, uh, there was a need in, in the market, yes. and fulfill the need. Uh, in your experience, does this plague just the very large organizations or does it happen over time with the small and medium businesses as well? Oh, I've seen it everywhere. If you just talk about small business, one of the things I find about small business, like let's say it's under 50 million or family owned businesses, right? I've done a lot of work there. Uh, people develop a business for a lifestyle. They've got their golf club, they've got their car, they've got their nice house, and they want to just keep that and keep that safe. And they, they just forget where their customer is. They, they constantly make efficiency improvements so that money falls to the bottom line and, and goes to their golf club membership. So even in, in small businesses, this is a problem. I think in bigger businesses, it's a bigger problem. So perhaps it's this idea of uh, comfort and we're, we're not so willing. I mean, once we get comfy, we're not so willing to take risks anymore. We don't want any kind of change. We just want to want the things to be the way they are so that we can go, you know, to the country club or to the golf club or, you know, <laughs> buy the, the, the blue label as opposed to the red label. That's and, right. And we, we don't want any change, really. Is, is this basically the idea? We, we don't really want any change. We want to, you know, keep doing what, you know, we, you hear this, uh, a winning team, you don't touch, you don't change, but then, customers move out and uh, we get disconnected. Is this what's going on here? Well, I, I try to take, well, I do take uh, teams through a, uh, a model that I use. There are four forces at work in change. There are two forces that hold us where we are, that keep the status quo. And those forces are your core competence, things that you do well, and they're orthodoxies. And those are the rules that you create to be successful. The things that pull us into the future are trends, the world is changing, and customer insights. Your customers now want different things. And those things are pushing you into the future, whereas the other are always pulling you into the past. So it's getting people to understand the dynamics of that framework, because if you move to change too quickly, you, you just end up in chaos. And if you, uh, if you stay away from change and don't move quickly enough, you end up being disconnected. So understanding those dynamics is fundamental to change. You know, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk with you is because you, you get so philosophical at times and the way <laughs> in, in which you explain things. 
so this tug of war between the present and the past. Yeah. So what we try to hold on to this this idea, and uh, and we try maybe we are at fault because we kind of hold the company uh, to those standards, to those orthodoxies, as you said, and right. we are slow uh, to detach from them. We we don't really want to detach them. We want to kind of you know milk the cow as as long as we possibly can. But I I, I like the way in which you have a play with words and and you explain it really really well. I have a different kind of comment and a different uh, kind of question. So Professor Passo says, you know, a lot of the companies love to talk about innovation, right? Everybody loves the innovation, but they don't realize it. So it's easy to talk about innovation, but we it's hard to get there. And you're saying, you know, we 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 have this tug of war between the past and the Correct. future. And we just maybe we're just mouthing it off. We we like innovation, but we don't really want any change. So what are, why, what are the main reasons, in your opinion, why we, we, we don't really get there? We, we just talk about it. Are we not willing to make the sacrifices or the changes? Or are we so, I will use the word, chained to the past? And we so much like going to the golf, golf course and the, 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 the club membership that we, 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 don't, we, we don't want to do anything with potentially could harm that. Is that what's going on here? I find innovation, and I've worked innovation uh, around the world for the last 10 years, and it excites me. It energizes me. Innovation is all about ideas. So how do you generate those ideas? And there are methods to do that. Using the framework that I just discussed, actually, uh, we say that innovation without insight is malpractice. So if you can't bring insight to the table, then you're just, you're just daydreaming in a gymnasium. So by crashing those uh, insights, you can get new ideas. I tell people, I play golf, and uh, you think of looking down at your golf club and you think of video, which is everywhere. Well, someday they're going to put a video on the head of your golf. You know, two ideas brought together, innovation. Why don't people innovate? Uh, why don't they get what? Well, first of all, we've had a lot of success. I've had a lot of success in innovation in places uh, like Whirlpool, uh, Altria was a big success, Korea Telecom. Uh, but the places uh, where innovation doesn't happen, it, it does get dragged into the past. We can take you, we can build innovation capabilities in companies. You can look at successful people like Michael Dell and they do things differently. They network, uh, they talk, uh, they challenge, right? They're always looking, Elon Musk, right? Always looking for something out there. Those are natural innovators, but we can build innovation into an organization. What happens is that sometimes these great innovations just get shut down by the past. I'll give you one very, very simple example. We were working in a company and uh, the, the service reps. So when your, your service rep came to you, there was no name or phone number for the service rep. There was the company brand and the company call number. And the idea was that they were trying to promote the brand. Well, I actually told the chairman of the board, if there's one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get people's names on their cards. I never did it. The CEO in a public meeting said that, that he would not accept it because he was supportive to the brand image 
that his brand uh, marketing uh, VP was, was setting out and he would not get off that spot. So there comes times when very simple things get overtaken by the past. Okay, so let's, let's uh, continue a little bit uh, more on your journey. So the customer-driven change uh, proper, why did you become so passionate about that? What drove you? Well, as a consultant, customers are always there. And you always think you know about customers. But I found out I didn't. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, uh, uh, I was hired by a company that did uh, customer loyalty research. And I'd never heard of it. The founder of the company wrote a 400-page dissertation on the mathematics, the statistics, the research, the modeling behind how to understand customer loyalty. You can measure customer loyalty. It's basically understanding whether they will advocate for you, buy your product, and extend your product. What you have to look at are the antecedents, the things, the inputs, the, the touch points. Uh, the call center, the retail, uh, the pricing, account managers, sales reps, whatever the customer touches. You can collect data on that. And then you run this data through a structured equation model, which I never did. I, I watched it in fascination. And it, and it looks at rational and emotional connections of those touch points to the measurement. And then by running the data back and forth, you can find the most effective route from how you touch the customer to increasing customer loyalty. And what we find is that oftentimes people believe they're doing something to create loyal customers and actually it is meaningless and there's something that they're neglecting which really drives that equation. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, the business case, right? So can you give us a few examples of someone or some entity that actually did change well? <laughs> sure, that's, that's always... And you know, I'm always cautious on this. Do you remember uh, the book? Uh, oh, man. I, uh, gee, I can't remember the book. It was so famous because he cited all of these uh, uh, cases and five years later, all those kids, they're, all they're all gone, right? Who did change your blockbuster did change very well. <laughs> well, that was exactly, Go exactly back. what happened. Go back and erase it, right? <laughs> it's exactly what happened. So I'm always somewhat reluctant. So I look for a track record. Oh, I got, can't remember what that book was. Um, but uh, I, I, I look at Starbucks. I'm not a Starbucks fan. I don't pay $8 for my coffee. I drink black coffee. That's all I do. But when you look at Starbucks, uh, their starting point was a comfortable place to meet between home and office, okay? It still states that, but it is anything but that. I was in Denver, I don't know, 15 years ago, and this guy driving us to the client site said, oh, I got to stop for a Starbucks. And I thought, oh, my God, we got to go in, go in a line, blah, blah, blah. He went to a drive-thru. And I thought, this will ruin Starbucks, right? Like, that this is not Starbucks. This is not their core competence. Didn't work. About five years ago, I was in, uh, in outside Minneapolis working for a big company. And uh, we met the team in the, in the foyer. And somebody said, oh, I got to get Starbucks before we get to work. Oh my and I God. thought, oh, my God. Get into the lineup. Blah, blah. She put it in her app. 
And we drove to the store and she picked it up. So I keep thinking, this is ridiculous. Like Starbucks is not that place where people used to go for four hours and get a cup of coffee and work on their computer. Starbucks is not what it, it even promotes itself to be. An amazing story. I think too, very quickly, of, of places like uh, Southwest Airlines who put in operational efficiencies to free up the interface with the customer. They've continued with that. Places that didn't do well, uh, you mentioned, like Nokia's phone, uh, Simeon, they, they never got the Simeon software developed. It got bought by Microsoft. Kodak, you mentioned, and you also mentioned Blockbuster. I'm, I'm happy to uh, congratulate Elon Musk and Tesla. He's a research guy. He's an innovation person. He's ideas, right? And he created this electric vehicle, but couldn't get it out of the shop. They had to completely change how they meant and, and get people who actually knew how to produce things. So I give Elon Musk and Tesla a star for that one. Yes, actually, uh, I watched a documentary the other day about the last uh, standing blockbuster store. <laughs> and it was very interesting. But I, I kind of go back now that, uh, uh, to your point in terms of how we cling to the past. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's this, and of course, it's pure nostalgia, right? So we look at those things, and, and well, well, I mean, take Blockbuster for example. I was in Dallas. I worked at Blockbuster, I guess, in the late '90s, which probably the time that uh, I was working with them. And I ran into one of their their executives one day, and he just said, "Bud, we see the train coming down the track. We can't get off the track." Blockbuster was building a big film distribution center in Plano at that time. But Blockbuster's strategy was not selling movies to customers. Blockbuster took the McDonald's strategy of being a realtor. And Blockbuster owned some of the most precious property in this country. And as a realtor, it couldn't get away from that fast enough and eventually it got eaten up. So sometimes uh, it, it, it's more than nostalgia. I work, as I said, I work for Eltria, the cigarette company here, and I work in packaging. And there's amazing things that go on in packaging and packaging innovation. The problem with Eltria is they have to have a box exactly this size to fit in the racks in every convenience store in this country. So sometimes you just can't change. Yeah, very difficult. Okay. There, okay. Uh, let's change subjects a little bit. Okay. So you wrote a new article titled Organizational Transformation. So you just gave me several examples there. You know, does it ever happen? I am so glad you asked that question. And I'm 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 kind of disappointed in an answer because it's becoming more and more difficult. Uh, we hear things like 70% of change fails. I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, we hear that uh, two thirds of, of, of people aren't engaged at their work. Now we're hearing 50% of people have quietly quit. How do you make change in an environment like that? And then I, I thought back to when I started in this business and we seem to do change. We seem to get change done, major changes. I think I write in the article, 
Uh, I'm Canadian. I worked in the Canadian federal government at a point in time. And we completely changed uh, the language requirements in, uh, in federal employees. Uh, that was done under Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the, the father of the current prime minister of Canada. But it was, it was, uh, it was structured from the top down. Managers took charge of that and got it done. I don't now, think can, that. Can we talk a little bit about that because you know I, I remember this, but this was and people talk about very nonchalantly, but this was a major undertaking. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, talking about you know reproducing whatever was done in two different different languages and 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 getting it pushed through you know the bureaucracy in a country. I mean, that goes uh, for the same in the continental dimensions of as, as, as the U.S. is uh, from, uh, from Vancouver to Montreal, uh, up all the way to the to the uh, Arctic Circle. It's unbelievable. Well, well, number one, you did have large commitment. You had the prime minister who said this is going to be done. They just passed an official languages act. And then when they looked at the federal government, the federal government was largely English speaking. The French speaking uh, Francophones were generally in clerical and administrative support jobs. So, uh, so you had the, the English structure, right? And all, all business in the government generally, except for parts of Quebec, in some parts of Quebec, was done in English. We took all 300, 350 positions in the government and assigned a language requirement to that. So reading, writing, listening, speaking, right? You had to have a level to be in your job. Sometimes it was just minimum. Sometimes it was a lot. And that, if you didn't meet your language requirements, your career had just changed because you could only move to a, a job where you met that language requirement. And that opened the government up to new employees, to a new culture. The total culture was changed. There was a lot of resistance. And that's the one thing I see today. People are afraid to make employees uncomfortable. Uh, we now live in a bubble and we're bubble wrapped <laughs> inside that bubble, right? So uh, that at the time, the, uh, the human cost was recognized, but the managers very definitely uh, took their responsibility followed that plan and it got done. It changed the government and it changed, it changed Canada. Oh, I think you brought equality, right? Equality of opportunity, oh. right? There's so many things out there. And, and while you were talking, you were thinking about, well, let's think of Switzerland, which has four different languages in there, right? Including Romance. Uh, but then let's talk about a place like India where there's a multitude of languages, right? And, and people struggle uh, to get ahead, yeah. you know, yeah. they, they don't speak the, the lingua franca right. or the language. Right. But if you have a, a government entity that makes space for people, or at least does not discriminate against them. But if we are in the position where we can make space for others who speak, you know, the same nation, but speak different languages, if we can allow them uh, to work and, and to grow, I mean, they can only prosper. So overall, this is positive for a country, not negative, although it, it's challenging, it's difficult. I mean, learning languages is, is not easy. I think it's, it's <laughs> a lifelong journey, isn't it? it? It really is. You know, when we started the, uh, when, I, when I started in the federal government, there was a, a journalist uh, in Montreal, he wrote for the uh, 
he wrote for the English uh, uh, newspaper. I think it was the English newspaper. I can't remember. But anyway, he wrote, why is it when I come to work, I have to hang up my coat and my language at the door? Mm -hmm. And that just that just affected me. Like, like, why is that? And when I see um, organizations today, I, I like the idea of, of equity and, and equality, diversity in organizations, because if people aren't working in their language or their culture, you don't have a, a complete person, right? You've hired somebody who isn't totally there. So allowing people some, some freedom of culture and particularly language at work brings out more in people. I, I worked with uh, a lot of French Canadians and I, I worked with a lot of uh, Hispanics in, in the United States, you know, other ethnic groups you can think of too. And uh, they, we, in, in a strictly English situation, they look not very intelligent because they're working in a second language, right? And you put them in a completely different room, you take them to the room next door and they're brilliant. Right. And, and it's just a transformation that happens because the person can act as themselves at work. Yeah, you, you mentioned this and this is so powerful. Uh, so and, and here in or at least in the West, we tend to think of someone who's smart, speaks two languages. Well, <laughs> but when you talk about India, they speak four or five, six different languages. Right. Absolutely. And they're not that not close to each other. No. They're you know, not even derivatives of Sanskrit anymore. And so people have, you know, five, six languages in which they can converse. And I, I think about that because uh, you mentioned, you know, making someone, and, and I think it's a powerful image of the idea of hanging the coat and hanging yeah. the language and hang, hanging the culture over there. But nowadays, I think we have to make an even bigger effort to make the places all inclusive. I mean, you know, it's ethnic diversity, age diversity. You have people who uh, have a lot of experience that have a lot to contribute. We have people who are just entering the workforce and they have a lot to contribute as well. But also uh, gender, you know, uh, sexual orientation, religion orientation. So the idea of embracing diversity can only accelerate transformation, not slow it down, isn't it? I, I think that's true, and but I think it needs a balance. One of the things that worries me uh, in, in this discussion these days is that managers have totally shifted to the employee side. And I see that managers aren't taking their responsibility. A manager can't be held accountable for engaging their people. They can be held accountable for creating the conditions where people can get engaged. We all know that organizations work better when people find themselves at work. Managers can create the conditions of respect and inclusion and, and just work processes. But people also have to give of themselves. They have to say, I'm not going to quiet quit. I'm going to work and I'm going to find some value in what I'm doing. I always ask people, why do you go to work? Do you go to work for a paycheck or do you go to work for a career? And there's different answers to that. If someone goes for a paycheck, then they're going for transactional. They can remote work in Seattle, <laughs> but they can also remote work in Saigon, right? Like that, that transactional job can be removed. 
if you're going to work for a career, you do different things. You do show up in the office. You do talk to your boss. You're available to your boss. You politic, right? So uh, I, I think that that managers have kind of lost perspective today. Uh, I wrote, uh, whoop, sorry, I, uh, a friend of mine, we put together woo, this book, uh, Engaging the Workforce. Okay, he's a, he's a friend of mine from Cyprus. And what we find in the research is that managers have gone just too far in the give and not far enough in taking responsibilities to create ways that people can get engaged. You have to come back because I think that's an <laughs> entire hour to talk about 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 that book. But let's let's remain on this this topic of uh, engagement and also this resistance to change. Why is it that uh, you know people resist so much? What kind of best practices, BKM strategies, tips and tricks you could offer? To help facilitate change implementation, how, how can we, um, is it increasing the engagement? In your perspective, in your experience, what helps? Um, in my book, I say the number one reason that change fails is because we're working on the wrong thing. If you're going to make a change, be sure you can do it. Oftentimes, change is running away from the present. We can't do what we're supposed to be doing, so we're going to change to some new vision, right? If you can't get your current working, it's hard to believe you're going to create something new. So, so my, my first plea is to, to make sure you can do what you say you're going to do, okay? Uh, you you got to be able to do what's possible. Everybody talks about um, executive commitment. You know, the biggest factor of the success of change is that executives were committed. Well, Pierre Trudeau was committed to his change uh, and provided resources to get it done. Oftentimes, managers are accused of not being committed. I always ask, what did you do to make sure your manager was committed. Did you talk to them? Did you get on their agenda? Did you go to their strategic retreat? Did you provide them the information they needed? And oftentimes we don't. We just actually were afraid to go into the manager's office. I've never found a manager yet who denied success. So if, you're, if your change is successful, the first person to be there is gonna be the, the, the manager, the sponsor but you have a responsibility um, to, to involve them. And so when you interrupt you for a second, and sure. uh, I think, so you, you hit a different chord in there, but you know, talking truth to power, we are not, not really yeah. dealing. And, and this week we had some, some major event, right? So President Xi Jinping was confirmed for his third term as leader of China. And there was a, a council of elders And one of the observations made is none of them were willing to, to talk, you know, truth to power. That no one was willing to dissent or even have the slight perception that they, they, they dissent. The former leader of China was walked out of the stage, right? So probably he wasn't going <laughs> along with, with, with uh, the story. Right, 
right? So how, I mean, even in the highest echelons of someone running, you know, a, a powerful country, that's difficult. So how can we influence or engage people so that they do become that person that, that speaks truth to power? This is so important, so critical to the success of companies, countries, you know, you name it, projects. What can we do? Is it, you know, um, how do we engage these people or the ones that would be willing, most are not, but how do we engage those people and say, well, it, it's okay for you to say, you know, I don't, I don't think your, your lime green carpet goes well in the living room. How do we get those people to say that? Uh, well, well, first there's, an, there's a judgment there on what is truth, mm -hmm. right? So your truth may not be the boss's truth, uh, but where, where, that, where I've seen that work, you know where it works well, believe it or not, is in the military. I've, I've had experience in the military and I have seen such violent arguments in the military where, where, a, where a captain is dressing down a general because the general doesn't understand the expertise of, of that major, right? And, and then but when it's all over, they say, okay, you had your say, but we're going to do it my way anyway. But just violence. Um, I, I talk to management teams about trust and tolerance. If you can't build trust and tolerance, you're not going to speak truth to power. People just don't trust people. The other thing I see is that there are some amazing people. And, and I, I would like to study it sometimes, but I've, I've never had the chance. But some great managers, you think about, and I, I, you ask me questions, I can't, but I think about, uh, there was a dress designer from Italy who was just totally crazy, but his second in command, right? The person, he would tell that guy, you are crazy. This is not going to work. And he would get it under control, right? And, and the other guy oh, would, would believe him so much because he was, he'd always helped out. I've seen managers like that. They all have a, a, a conciliere, right? Uh, who they can go to their office and behind closed doors, they'll say, the person will say, you are wrong, right? And, and it's respected somehow. I don't, I, I really don't know. I was in a meeting once, very big meeting. And uh, this, this chief marketing officer said, you know, we've had this problem. And I told my people to go away and give me an answer. And they gave me an answer, which was useless. He said, I solved the problem like that. Why, whoops, why can't our people be more like that? And somebody in the room said, well, because you've trained them for 30 years not to be like that, right? You've trained them on rules and processes and procedures. So when we give you an answer, it's going to be the answer you've given us. It's, it's very, very difficult, which is why when, Leaders change and managers change. New ideas, they're not new ideas. Ideas just seem to come to the table for a while until they get structured. Yeah, I'll share, some, I'll share some war stories. So I, um, at one point I had to give, um, so I worked, I'm an economist and I had a different projection than the party line was dictating. Yeah. And, you know, the voice of dissent and, uh, you know, the manager, the director, the vice president, the senior vice president said, are you sure about what you're saying? Are you really, really sure about, you know, you know, you're going to get grilled. You have to talk to the most senior person. And when uh, I, I went in a call with her, 
she asked me basically uh, two questions. She said, is this just an opinion or is this output of your research? I said, it's the output of the research. It was a mathematical model. She asked me a few questions about the model. I said, uh, okay, fine. Go ahead and say it. You know, uh, uh, people uh, are so intimidated uh, and the most senior person said, you know, voice of the same, I will hear you. Is it just an opinion or was it fact-based? Did you actually do an analysis? So you just, you just want to make sure that I actually did my homework. Yep. And once you realize I did my homework, I said, hey, go ahead and say it. <laughs> you know, but, you know, people, uh, you know, and especially the middle management, you know, so they, they intimidate course and to a certain extent that people are afraid to talk. And I think it's so important that we come out and if you have a different view, say it, you know. I think we say that it goes back to the innovation question. If you have an idea, tell me. Uh, ideas from everywhere, from everyone, right? Well, if you're going to prophesy that, you have to live it. So particularly in public, if someone says something that you don't agree with, you, you have to be trained and managers have to be trained uh, to listen and to ask before they advocate, right? That's the old advocacy uh, uh, listening kind of model. And I see managers do that all the time. They'll start a meeting by saying, this is a safe place. Anybody can say what you want. If you have a new idea, we'd love to hear it until you say it, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, I, I go to places and they hire a brand new VP of revenue or whatever it happens to be. Uh, because we need some new blood here. We need some new ideas. Six months later, they're gone. You know, so it's it's a tolerance thing. And we are impatient in the West. I think when you get to Asian cultures, I mean, they see time differently than we do. We see time as sequence. In Asia, you see it as a cycle. Right? You're not the first person to have this problem. You won't be the last person to have this problem. We'll get around to it when our relationship gets around to it, right? In the, in the Western culture, it's much, much more, more harsh than that way. Of course, in the Asian culture, they listen, they just won't act. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I, it's all different. I had one such incident where um, a very, two very senior people were, were arguing, and it was the, actually the, the person who was leading the team in Japan. And then the director started barking at this guy. And the guy just stood up and said, hi, hi, hi. And then when the meeting was over, uh, she turned to all of us and said, see, this is how you do business. <laughs> you know? And then in private, I, I, I told my director, he's not going to do anything with what you said. So That's my right. ex was from Japan. So I, I, I knew that hi in Japan only means I hear you. Yeah. He never once said yes. He yeah. said I hear you," he said. Yeah. But the partial says, "Hi, hi, I hear you." And then she looked at me and said, "You're crazy. He's gonna do exactly <laughs> as I say." But he didn't. It's hard <laughs> to speak truth to power. It is, but but I told her, "Look, he's just saying I hear you." It's just no, you know. That's it. That's it. It, it is amazing how, and especially in in someone like you that had the experience to go across so many different cultures, right? I think we that's part of the learning how to engage people is that, you know, um, say, saying certain things a certain way or saying things in private as opposed to in public. 
or you know if you really mean it you know if you really want to welcome change you know actually preach what you what you do but but do yeah. what you preach and i think that's part of the drama because so many empty words are thrown into the wind like we welcome change no we really don't we want everything no. to be exactly as it no. was before and it's um it's very hard but the people that i run into that actually do welcome change they are very successful you know th that's across the board and that's one of my teachings uh, i i take examples of people you know like like a michael dell and they are successful i don't take steve jobs he is not my uh, my mentor steve jobs was very much i know what the customer needs i think i I, we've talked about this before. When when the iPad came out, he was asked, "What does what's it for?" And he said, "I don't know." Right? People will figure it out because at that time it was simply a uh, uh, there was no creation. It was just simply receiving back, you know, 2010 or something. And you know, people figured out what to do with an iPad. So Steve Jobs sometimes, <laughs> I mean, he'd be difficult to speak truth to that power. Yes, I heard worse stories about him, but it, it really doesn't take a whole lot uh, to engage someone. So I will share another story with you. And so I was then working uh, for Boeing. I worked for Boeing for a few years and I got sick. So uh, my manager didn't ask how I was feeling. Uh, the, the director didn't either. The executive director came to my desk, said hi. And I thought, well, is there anything you need? He says, no, I just want to check on you. That's you nice. know what? You know what? You know, I admire this person to this day because he didn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't a work thing. It was just that actually he cared. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. can set, you know, I'll say company policy is thou shall ask yeah. someone how they're feeling, right? You can even state that, but you can, you can see it when it's not sincere. But right. the real leader, you know, the person that, you know, puts others, you know, or thinking of others in front of him or herself, that person you can spot that person in the crowd. Yeah, and that, and that gets to another fundamental, what's management and what's leadership, right? That's a leader at that point in time. They're taking an emotional route to you. A manager is going to be more about plans and strategies and mechanics and get your job done, whereas a leader is going to step outside. And that's where we get this discussion these days about things like emotional intelligence and how do you engage people and involve people? Those are two different personalities, right? And we all have it in us. We can all be trained or educated in us. And what I find, man, people get things confused. You know, we're, we're told so often to be these leaders and these empathetic managers that it gets in the way of accountability. And sometimes when, when managers are acting as managers, uh, they feel bad because they're not being empathetic. We have to understand how to balance these two roles when we're at work. Yeah, that's certainly kind of difficult. Now, organizational change is certainly very difficult, right? Um, luckily, you have quite a lot of experience and with this exact same topic. So what is your advice for those who are really just starting out and they struggle to get change implemented? What's well, your I advice? Think I think we've covered a lot of that. I, I think you do have to know where you're going. It has to be achievable. Uh, you have to have a vision. I talk about an aiming point, which is different from a goal, right? Like we're going west <laughs> and we're going to get to San Francisco 
but that's not, you know, we're going west. That's our goal. There are intermediate, I think, successive approximations is something that people have to work on when they change. They have to look at something uh, and, and, and be happy when they achieve something that, that looks like you're going in the right direction. Then you modify, you change, you take more successive approximations. It's a, it's, it's a platitude that you have to get people involved. And, and I agree with that. Uh, but don't, I, I, I beg managers, don't go too far in your considerations of, of empathy and human cost. If you're actually going to implement something, people have a responsibility to get on your side too. One of the things that, that I've found is when people resist, they'll often say it's because they don't accept the change. And they'll often use the customer. This change isn't good for our customer. And actually what they're saying is this change isn't good for me. I see that my job's going to change. I might lose my job. Uh, so just watch that. People, people will use uh, the customer as a scapegoat here. Yeah, they certainly do. They use the customer or the voice of the customer, whatever they think the voice of the customer uh, really is. And I had a, a very interesting manager at Boeing, and one of the advices he gave me is, you have to uh, basically innovate yourself out of your own job. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I said, exactly. Oh my gosh, yeah, he says, don't get too comfy. You know, you know uh, go ahead, make changes. And you know what? the next opportunity will appear and the one after that and then the next one will be very different from the one you are in today and, and completely different from the one you had yesterday but he said that's the way of, of moving is keep innovating keep changing keep adapting so that you don't become one of the one of the dinosaurs right we we say change doesn't happen you know but look at the uh, the dow 30 in 1960 and look at it today. If you think changes don't happen. My one, my one last thing at customer driven change, be careful about that too, because I was working for a, 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 an electrical parts distribution company and they got a new uh, president and he was gonna be all about the customer. So he called me and he was gonna be all about the customer. And one of the things he did uh, was uh, go out to the customers to find out what they wanted, but he changed delivery. Uh, his trucks going out. So, so he committed to twice daily de delivery, not just once in the morning. And he went to talk to one of his, uh, his customers. And the guy finally said, like, if there's one thing you could do, get rid of the two times a day delivery. It's driving <laughs> us crazy. He says, every time you do that, I got to put a new crew on the loading dock. I got to get this stuff restacked. I can wait till tomorrow. So, <laughs> Even when you're trying to help your customer, be sure that your customer thinks it's help. Okay. Well, uh, I couldn't possibly <laughs> let you go without asking you to recommend a good book. What are you reading? You know, uh, first of all, um, I don't read much management uh, material anymore. I find that a lot of it is just a rehash of narratives that I already know. I, but I do read some, so I, I won't leave you there. I'd read a lot of uh, history and biographies because they they kind of show me what people were doing. So I, I, I find that very insightful. Oh, let's what go I, there. Tell me your favorite biography. Oh, God. Uh, 
Uh, you know, uh, a, a favorite child, isn't it? <laughs> there's, there, there, no, 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 no. There's no question, okay, but just, it's, just it's, it's, it's probably not going to. It's not going to help the interviewer interview. It's 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 Grant's autobiography, uh, General mm-hmm. Ulysses S. Grant. Unbelievable biography. He was an. I, I don't want to get into politics here, but I think he was an unbelievable person for the time. Person for the time. His biography is is wonderful. So. Uh, but it's not a man. In terms of management, I tend to read data-driven uh, kind of things. Back to your point, is that your opinion or is there data? And I, I, I like data. I, I like to you know, form my opinions based on data. And three things that I'm, I'm looking at the more, I, I read uh, Steven Pinker's Rationality, which is always good. It's amazing the mistakes people make because they assume some probability or something, right? So he takes a walk down that. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I, I read Scott Galloway. I don't know if you know Scott Galloway, but he, he's written a book called uh, Adrift. This is my current uh, trend that I'm into is the malaise of men, young men, you know, particularly young men and older men. When you look at gun violence in this country, most gun violence is suicide and most gun violence is old white men because they've lost meaning in their life. Uh, Scott Galloway looks at that. And I think I think looking at uh, young men, uh, Richard Reeves has a book out of boys and men. So this is a whole new trend. Uh, There's so much uh, and it's not an anti trend politically. Uh, it's it's difficult taking hold because it sounds like it's anti uh, the the hashtag Me Too type movements, which it is not. It's just saying that there are disturbing trends showing up in young men. So I like data like that to understand what what trends are in society because societal trends eventually hit business. Okay, I just have one technical question for you. Authorize autobiography or non-authorized autobiography? Which one would you pick? Uh, authorized or non? I don't or know. non-authorized biographies. Uh, I'm not sure I understand that question. So some biography books are authorized, right? Condoned, authorized, and others are not authorized because oh. maybe they expose. Which one would you pick? I unfortunately, I'd have to take the authorized. I, I'm just not much of an entertainment tonight kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I don't like a lot of speculation, and you know, I I, I learned that early in my career. Uh, I I trust and verify. Uh, the first one of the first consulting jobs I ever had, I reported to the president that no, he had no strategy, and nobody understood what the company was doing, and that there's no plan. It was totally hopeless, right? And he said to me, well, the people you talk to, have they read our strategic plan? Have they seen our quarterly results? Have they read this communication from me? And I said, no, no. So I don't really believe a lot of what people say until I get, I, I've been caught uh, severely uh, making judgments without, without a fact in front of me. So I try to avoid that. Well, but thank you so very much for being here with me and the audience today. You know, the conversation certainly can go on, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Well, that is great. A lot of new questions and a lot of new things to think about. I hope I've helped uh, your audience. Uh, You know, the world is a moving place. You got to be part of it. And you certainly have to, uh, to come back. So again, one more time, folks. 
but tailors customer-driven change what your customers know and perhaps uh, what they don't know and what they don't know they don't know and so <laughs> on and so forth, right? So, so on and so forth. So uh, thank you so so much again, but you know, it was wonderful. I hope you can uh, return. And by the way, folks, uh, feel free to continue to submit your comments and questions too, but I know where he is. I will go, go over and find him and ask him a question. So this conversation will continue on our YouTube page. Feel free to leave comments and questions for but I'll make sure it, yes. it's read and presented to him. You know, if you're listening to us via podcast or watching us, uh, you know, as a recording on Futures Television or listening to the show on Radio Futures, again, you too can be part of the conversation. Just visit our YouTube channel and leave a comment. I will make sure it gets to Bud. And please don't forget to share and like this video and subscribe to our channel. I am uh, counting on you. Again, it's uh, time to say our goodbyes. I just want to uh, remind you again, uh, we are uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays via Futures Television on Apple TV and on Roku TV. And we are daily on Radio Futures at 2 p.m. Pacific, which is 5 p.m. Eastern. And of course, uh, bi-monthly on the IMCI magazine, actually uh, Bud's new article uh, is going to be presented there. Again, Bud, thank you so very much. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. You will. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much. And folks, see you next time in another edition of Books and Authors. See you then.